All right. In lieu of FOIA this week, what are you looking into here, Sam? In recent weeks, lawmakers, both senators and U.S. reps, Democrats and Republicans have raised concerns about China's role in international development, something that U.S. policymakers have been complaining about for roughly half a decade now. Take a listen to some recent commentary on the matter from congressional hearings. China has financed hundreds of billions of dollars in development projects around the world in the last 20 years. China is not extending their funds to these countries out of kindness. They are using their financing to aggressively expand their influence around the world. Um, in many instances, countries in the developing world are choosing between different financing packages. Way too often, they're choosing China and the usurious terms that come along with that. In your estimation, how effectively are we countering China's efforts to engage in debt trap diplomacy? General Townsend, um, any buyer's remorse, or I should say borrower's remorse in Africa with regard to the relationship of these countries to China? Are they, do, is there any, uh, uh, well, I think borrower's remorse is the right phrase. Uh, uh, second thoughts about these relationships? Um, Senator, I would say yes. We see that across the continent. Uh, so when, uh, as, you, as you're familiar, uh, when um, China started investing heavily uh, in uh, Africa, this term debt trap diplomacy uh, was born. Uh, I, I think, call it debt colonialism. Uh, that's another way of saying it as well. Incredibly rich to hear a U.S. official denounce debt colonialism. We'll get back to that in just a second. But it's notable that in every one of these instances, not a single U.S. official actually cites an example of what China's so-called debt trap diplomacy actually looks like. It's clear what they're referring to. The so-called Belt and Road Initiative launched by China in 2013 to step up international, international development financing. But other than that, U.S. officials are grasping at straw. Now, this isn't to say that China is not acting in its own self-interest here by extending credit to developing countries. Not at all. Obviously, these deals benefit Chinese ventures and trading initiatives. This also isn't to say that all Chinese finance development projects work out well for everyone involved. But the evidence of China acting like some kind of global payday lender is rather thin. For example, if these policymakers were to cite evidence of Chinese debt trap diplomacy, they would probably mention a case study of Sri Lanka. In recent years, the BRI financed the building of a port called Hambantota on Sri Lanka's south coast, and things didn't go so smoothly. But as noted by a UK-based think tank called Chatham House, the port was the idea of Sri Lankan officials who approached China, not vice versa. Hambantota was a purely commercial venture, and it ran into problems because it was, quote, one of several white elephant projects promoted by then-President Mahinda Rajapaksa as part of a corrupt and unsustainable developmental program. China did not seize the port when things went awry, it leased the port in exchange for $1.1 billion that Sri Lanka needed, and it's not like the Chinese Navy can use its facilities as a result. It cannot. The Sri Lankan Navy, however, will still be able to use Hambantota going forward. 
And finally, while Sri Lanka has experienced a debt crisis in recent years, this has little to do with China. The Sri Lankan government had borrowed heavily in global capital markets dominated by, you guessed it, the West. From Chatham House, quote, the borrowing and spending spree was facilitated by low global interest rates caused by the policy of quantitative easing favored by many Western central banks. Three quarters of external government debt was owed to private financial institutions, not to foreign governments. In 2016, debt servicing absorbed 44% of Sri Lankan government revenues. At the same time, Chinese loans comprised just 9% of Sri Lankan government debt. Moreover, an article published last year by The Atlantic, of all publications, found, quote, it was the Canadian International Development Agency, not China, that financed Canada's leading engineering and construction firm, SNC-Lavalin, to carry out a feasibility study of the port. So if anyone snared Sri Lanka in a debt trap here, it was Western governments and the capitalists that they serve. In other words, the Chinese debt trap theory falls short. As Chatham House says, quote, developing country governments and their associated political and economic interests determine the nature of BRI projects on their territory. China's, develop China's development financing system has always been recipient-driven, with projects being formally initiated through requests from foreign governments. And by the way, the think tank isn't saying this because it views China as some sort of paragon of international development competence. Quite the opposite, in fact. Quote, China's development financing system is too fragmented and poorly coordinated to pursue detailed strategic objectives. Now, contrast this with multilateral development finance and dominated by Western governments, such as credit from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, Loans from the IMF to countries in distress are often only provided if governments agree to open up their markets to capitalists by privatizing publicly owned assets and deregulating labor markets. These are conditions attached to loans given to many countries, including, by the way, Ukraine, which didn't see its debt canceled as a result of Russia's invasion. The IMF responded instead by just granting Ukraine another $1.4 billion in debt. But sure, it's China that's doing debt trap colonialism. On top of this, quite literally, are surcharges. The IMF imposes additional penalties on countries that need help the most, tacking on extra debt servicing costs to governments that borrow large amounts or who struggle to pay back their loans. Left-leaning lawmakers and policy analysts have been calling on the fund to drop these surcharges in recent months, citing the pandemic as a reason to act urgently without haste. As the New York Times noted, quote, some of the countries paying the fees, including Egypt, Ukraine, and Armenia, have vaccinated only about a third of their populations. The result, the critics argue, is that the IMF ends up undermining the financial welfare and stability of the very places it is trying to aid. Other countries that have been pushing for these surcharge cancellations include South Africa, Brazil, and Argentina, the latter of which is set to pay the IMF $1.6 billion in debt service this year, 70%, seven out, of every $10, seven out of every $10 that it spends on this, over $1 billion is coming from surcharges. 
one of the lawmakers urging the Biden administration to press the IMF on surcharges or on dropping the surcharges is Massachusetts Democrat Ayanna Presley. Here's how things went when she brought up the matter on Wednesday with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen at one of the hearings that saw several of Presley's colleagues complain about so-called Chinese debt trap diplomacy. Now, just a heads up, this clip is about three minutes long. The IMS surcharge policy imposes extra, often hidden fees onto countries with high levels of debt, and it's been widely denounced by development experts and civil society organizations as an unjust burden and a hindrance to our global economic recovery. Secretary Yellen, um, these fees are coming at the worst possible moment when countries are in the midst of a deadly global pandemic and in desperate need of humanitarian assistance and public health services. Are you worried that the IMF may be undermining the financial welfare and stability of the very places we are trying to support? Um, I, I'm, I'm supportive of the framework that includes IMF surcharges. They're part of the IMF's risk mitigation framework, and I see them as critical to protecting the IMF's resources and really making sure that they can um, play a critical role as a global lender of last resort. Um, you know, we're going to rely on the multilateral development banks and the IMF to provide more resources because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we need to make sure that the proper mechanisms are in place, and I think that these surcharges um, should, should remain in place. Well, Secretary Yellen, uh, respectfully, I, I disagree, and as do uh, 17 other congressional colleagues uh, who uh, sent a letter uh, to you uh, urging you uh, to reconsider uh, in January. And so uh, it's just in 2009, even before the pandemic struck, 64 countries spent more resources servicing foreign debts than they did on healthcare expenditures for their citizens. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, given that Egypt and Armenia have vaccinated less than 50% of their population, is it fair to say that the money these countries are paying in surcharge fees would be better spent on, say, vaccinating their people or addressing poverty? Well, clearly there are many countries that require resources and to address the pandemic, to address downturns in their economy and the adverse impacts um, of the economy and of the, the current global situation. And the IMF and the World Bank and other MDBs are um, providing those resources that are very much needed. So I think the surcharge uh, issue is, is separate and is a risk mitigation a policy that's appropriate. So the IMF is providing crucial support that countries need, uh, but first is demanding that these vulnerable countries pry open their markets to Western capitalists in order to receive the aid. Also, the assistance comes with steep fees, which uh, don't actually trap countries in debt. They're for risk mitigation. These people have a lot of nerve raising red flags about Chinese development financing. 